The following episode of Scream Scene deals with Germany during the period of Nazi rule. The episode may contain humor and mocking at Nazi expense, as well as use of terminology contrived by Nazis that has since been debunked. This is not intended and should not be construed in any way to make light of, condone, glorify, or endorse the beliefs, ideologies, events, actions, persons, or behavior of the Nazi regime, or to trivialize its war crimes, genocide, and other crimes against humanity. Welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Sarah. And I'm Ben. Thanks for listening to us today. Thanks for joining us back in Nazi Germany. Yeah. Yeah. If you haven't heard last week's episode, it might be a good idea to do that, (laughs) because Sarah gives a lot of really good setup and background on the rise of the Nazi party, how they integrated film into their propaganda apparatus, and what effect that had on the film industry and the kinds of movies that were made. Yeah, I'll briefly summarize, um, just to kind of give a little bit of context to the rest of Nazi Germany Part (laughs) 2, but yeah, I would also, I would still recommend you, you go back and listen. Yeah, for sure. Thanks for saying it was good, Ben. I appreciate that. Oh, yeah, no problem. I thought <laughs> it was a very good explanation. So what are we watching today? Well, today, Sarah, we're watching uh, what's actually our first film of 1936. Mm. It is called Fairman Maria. And I think, despite everything, it's going to be a bit of a treat. I have a suspicion. Why do you think that? So Fairman Maria has sort of the distinction of being the final German horror film of the initial original German horror tradition. Mm. Um, We're not going to see another horror film out of this country until 1961. Technically not this country. Sure, fair enough. And so if you look at a tradition that began with 1913's The Student of Prague and goes forward from there and sort of absorbs the expressionist movement at the same time and produces expressionist films, horror films, fantasy films, all of whom have this similar aesthetic mm. and and philosophy behind them. That ends here um, with the, you know, the tightening grip of Joseph Goebbels and the Rice Film Kammer on film production. These kind of films, you know, weren't seen as um, desirable anymore. Mm-hmm. And so this is really the last one. Yeah. So the director of this film is Franz Weisbar, and he was born in Tilsit in East Prussia in 1899. Oh. He directed his first feature film, Imbana des Eulenspiegels, in 1932. And prior to this point, he was most known for the 1934 drama Anna und Elisabeth, which had gained positive international critical acclaim. So, in 1935, Weisbar and a group of actors and crew formed a cooperative called Palace Film, and in the summer and fall of 1935, they shot Fairman Maria on location in and around the village of Heber. So it's an indie film. In a sense, yes. You know, it was made far away from the studios in Berlin by this cooperative, 
but a lot of the people who made this film went on to become pillars of the, like, Nazi establishment film industry as well. So it's indie in the sense that it's out of the structures, but the philosophy is still there. Um, I wouldn't even go so far as to say the philosophy, but the, the, um... The people making it are the same people who would make those other films, right? So okay. the, the talent behind it. With maybe the exception of Weissbar himself. Um, he was someone who did not really care for the Nazi philosophy of filmmaking mm. and didn't like working within that philosophy, which is maybe why he went outside of that structure to produce this film. Um, but at this point in his career, that was mainly because, you know, in 1935, really what it was was just because he was more interested in making films that he thought were artistic rather than propaganda. Mm -hmm. um, you know, even 1935, there were still a lot of horrors yet to be done by the Nazi regime. And there was also still a lot that people living there were sort of unaware of. Do you want to tell us what Fairman Maria means? Oh, uh, Ferryman Maria. Ah. So, Weissbar, um, co-wrote the script to Ferryman Maria with Hans-Jürgen Nierentz, and this is sort of where things get interesting, because Nierentz was the official Reichsfilm dramaturgin of Germany. Oh. A dramaturge, uh, or dramaturgist is someone who, usually they're employed by, like, a theatrical company, and their job is how to adapt stories to the stage. Uh, so if you, you're, you know, wanting to adapt, you have an idea for a story, you have maybe the music, or you have, you know, the source material, and you're like, how is this best presented on stage? Uh, you'll work with a dramaturgist for that. So they're not quite a writer, not quite a director. They sometimes will do those jobs, but they're sort of invaluable to both of those positions mm -hmm. uh, as a consultant. Sometimes the other thing that a dramaturgist will do is take an existing work, like a Shakespeare play, for example, and figure out, okay, how can we present this in a way that's relevant to, like, modern-day times? So um, Nierens's job as Reichsfilm Dramaturgen was, you know, his job was how can we take traditional German folklore and traditional German culture, adapt it to film, and do so in a way that best serves the needs of the Nazi party. Yeah, that lines up. Mm -hmm. He was also the director of Fernsehsender Paul Niepkoff, which was the world's first broadcast television station in Berlin. Uh, it was really, you could only pick it up if you either lived in Berlin or the greater Berlin area. Um, really only top party officials were sort of rich enough to afford televisions in their homes, but all throughout Berlin they had these um, public TV station, like, viewing cafes where they'd put, like, a big TV screen. Basically closed-circuit television. Yeah, exactly. Um, and the big thing that popularized it was um, because they had the Olympic Games there in 36. Mm -hmm. uh, so he was the director of that television station. And it's sort of believed that by partnering with Nierentz on writing the script, that sort of provided Weissbar with a shield for the dark fantasy story that Weissbar wanted to tell. Because the story in Fairman Maria could potentially be seen as inflammatory to Nazi ideology, but by partnering so closely with this high-ranking sort of party official uh, in the making of the film, it sort of made him a little bit untouchable. Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting. I wonder why this dramaturgian 
came onto the film. Yeah, I don't really know. I'm not sure if it's just because, from his point of view, he just thought it was, like, a neat story to tell, you know, and, and didn't quite, you know, things weren't far enough along yet that some of these forms of expression had been, like, totally stamped out, right? Mm -hmm. The film's cinematographer is uh, Franz Weimeyer, and he was one of the leading cinematographers of the Nazi era of film. He shot 90 films in his career from 1924 to 1964. Wow. And probably what's most notable in there is uh, two films, 1935's Triumph des Wins, or Triumph of the Will. Yeah. Uh, by uh, Lenny Riefenstahl, and also he shot 1942's Die Grosse Liebe, which um, was the most commercially successful film of the Third Reich. Okay. So, you know, big deal Nazi cinematographer, basically, working on this movie. And this is what I mean when I say outside the system, but employing that system's talent. Another example of that is the score for this film, which is by Herbert Wint. Uh, and he was a major composer of the Nazi era. In fact, he composed the scores for all of Lenny Riefenstahl's films, uh, Triumph des Vain, uh, Olympia, and Tiefland. Where Tieflings come from. Right, yeah. <laughs> like in D&D. Uh, the film stars in its eponymous role of Fermin Maria, Siebel Schmitz, Born in 1909 in Duren, Germany, uh, she began acting with the Max Reinhardt Company in 1927, and we last saw Schmitz in 1932's Vampire, oh. where she portrayed uh, Leon, the dying sister, you know, who's sick in bed the whole movie. Yeah, still doing the indie boot, I guess. Yeah, so with the rise <laughs> of Nazi cinema... Schmitz found it very difficult to get leading roles because she had dark hair and dark eyes, and that made it unacceptable for her to be a romantic lead. Yeah. And if you're an actress and you can't be a romantic lead, that really narrows your options. Uh, so instead, she was mostly cast as femme fatales or as foreign women who meet bad ends. Oh, no. Uh, you know, the, the foreign temptress. Yeah. So this film is actually a rare occasion where she scored a starring role, and the result of that is it gained this film a lot of criticism in Germany, uh, where it was found not to meet the standards of racial hygiene oh boy. due to the fact that it stars a brunette. Uh... I mean, Schmitz, ethnically, she was German, fully German, but not blonde. Or blue-eyed. Mm-hmm. Uh... So Fairman Maria premiered on January 7th, 1936, uh, to a mixed reception. The romance subplot was criticized because it implied that love could impart nationality instead of race alone. Mm. Goebbels apparently hated the movie, and he was quoted as saying, It is an experiment, and not a good one. <laughs> uh, however, some publications were kinder. Uh, the cinematography was praised, the sound design, and the overall cinematic technique of the film were all praised as sort of pioneering, and the Reichsfilmkammer would present the film with an award for artistic value, which placed it under films uh, awarded for special political value, or the films that got rewarded as film of the nation, um, but still was like a, a high honor uh, at the time. 
Fairman Maria would also see praise by international critics, and uh, after a few more years struggling under the Nazi artistic regime, uh, Weisbar would actually emigrate to the United States in 1939, changing his name to Frank Wisbar, and initially making his money giving anti-Nazi lectures until he had sort of enough money to become a filmmaker again. And in 1945, he would actually remake this movie as an American version called Strangler of the Swamp. Which I presume we'll watch eventually. Yeah, yeah, sometime in the next two years. Yeah. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, uh, Siebel Schmitz would find herself shunned and criticized after the war because she had continued to work through the Nazi era. Mm-hmm. Um, so because of that, she had a lot of difficulty getting roles in the 1950s and would fall into alcoholism and drug abuse. And she would uh, die in 1955 uh, from suicide. That's unfortunate. Yeah. Yeah. So that's sort of the story of Fairman Maria. And uh, last week we gave you, the listener, a... Um, overview of Nazi film up to this point. We're not going to be seeing any more Nazi films on this podcast, uh, thankfully, but we thought that, you know, rather than leave you hanging, we might uh, fill in the rest of the story of what happened with Nazi cinema. Yes, so like we were saying in the opening, last episode I covered how, with the Nazis in power, they began a process of Schaltung of Nazification of the country, from economics to cultural institutions. Chosen to head the department in charge of the cultural Gleischaltung was Josef Goebbels. As head of the Reich Ministry of Public Enlightenment and Propaganda. So that's 1933 Mm -hmm. that he gets that job. So between then and 1945, the way he really controlled the cultural message of things was having membership to groups like Reich Filmkammer mandatory to work in a cultural or media industry. And I would expect that um, membership's mandatory if you want to be in film, but membership's also closed to certain people. Yes, and you can't work in the industry unless you have membership. Yeah. So regardless of whether someone's making a propaganda film or not, the cultural message was still controlled and manipulated. Mm -hmm. Goebbels argued that a national cinema with glamour and escapism would be far more effective than having everything be propaganda. Yeah. Um, Kind of the idea was to, like, distract and be happy. Mm -hmm. So I kind of mentioned this last episode, but... With that goal of, like, escapism and not everything having to be propaganda, less than a sixth of total films were what I would call explicit propaganda, like, made to further a specific ideological goal of Nazism. Right. Um, Like, Triumph of the Will, The Eternal Jew, that Mm -hmm. kind of thing. Yeah. While most films' output were more lighthearted entertainment with realistic characters kind of with what we talked about last week, was the Volkisch movement, kind of that turn to folklore, German folklore uh, in Nazism, also meant a callback to folktales in films. And that was actually really enlightening when we were talking about last week's Student of Prague. Mm -hmm. Um, I hinted at this before, but the film industry 
1933 to like 35 was not doing well in the early days of Goebbels's administration. Um, many skilled people in the industry had fled or had been just outright banned by the Reich film comer. And now with these jobs being difficult to fill because you do need a level of skill, um, the people who stayed or had membership demanded higher wages. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Listen, nine out of ten directors fled the country. I'm the only one who's left. You better pony up. <laughs> <laughs> All of this meant it was difficult to produce films uh, within a reasonable budget, and it was also increasingly difficult to market these films outside of Germany because of international boycotts. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Not a lot of... Uh you know, market for, um, you know, Jutsus uh, outside of, you know, the German Reich. Yeah. Well, because, like, especially propaganda films, they're made for the German audience. Yeah, exactly. So even if people weren't boycotting Nazi German films, <laughs> they probably would not have been received well anyways. Yeah, yeah, there's nothing there for you in them, right? With this kind of difficult economic landscape for the German film industry production companies started to collapse. Right, sure. So in 1933, Germany had 114 production companies. By 1941, they had 38. Wow. As these numbers fell, Goebbels kind of considered this a good thing because it's easier to control 38 sure. rather than over 100. Mm -hmm. But Goebbels also went so far as to have a holding company by stock majorities in the remaining companies. Okay. The same company actually bought out Ufa, who we've mentioned in past uh, German episodes. Yeah, I think they were, you know, we've said they were the largest studio. Yeah, so they bought out Ufa and merged it with other large production companies, making it Ufi Group in 1937. So you might be wondering how a nationalized cinema production company might have stocks. Well, because wasn't this like... Nazi Germany's whole, like, weird, everything's going to be nationalized, but we're still capitalists, like, play it both ways kind of deal. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they still acted as private companies, but, you know, they would be controlled with Goebbels's holding company controlling the majority stock, or just buying out and grouping them and having kind of some kind of hold over them, as well as, of course, the... Reich Film Kammer membership being mandatory. Yeah, yeah. Um, there was national funding from Goebbels for special politicized films, but even that money was from private investors, not, like, taxpayer money. Okay. Yeah, that was just, like, an interesting thing I, I found. Mm-hmm. Um, what all of this does mean, though, is the industry still had to make films that were profitable mm -hmm. and popular. Before coming to Nazi Germany, we've seen horror go down in favor uh, across the ocean in the U.S. and even in Britain. Mm -hmm. Part of why horror doesn't really survive Nazi Germany might be because of this as well. Yeah, for sure. It's not what people want to see. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it, it's we, we talked last episode a lot about Goebbels not liking horror because it sort of puts a negative window on society, and he wanted to put a very positive window on that society. But it's also true that if you're in, you know, a totalitarian society like Nazi Germany, and you're in, especially in wartime, in that kind of a society, 
you know, as an audience member, you're probably more inclined to enjoy lighthearted escapist fare than you would be dark horror stuff. Totally. Yeah. You don't really want to, like, you might not know everything that's going on that's being done by the government, but there's also a part that I think you don't want to know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, for sure. You just want to be able to live your life day to day and, and, you know, still go to the movies, watch cartoons, have a good time as if nothing had changed. Mm -hmm. With the industry kind of changing, especially with lead actors, Nazi Germany's star system was pretty lacking. Mm -hmm. Which is not good if you want to try to mirror, or best, the glamour of Hollywood. So the Nazi Germany star system was pushed, and leading actors or actresses who were chosen to become this kind of glamorized celebrity uh, would go out and get posed with political leaders like Goebbels, Hitler, whatever, and Mm -hmm. that's to boost the celebrity's own star power rather than the political leaders, which is funny because usually it's switched, right? Yeah, but they're trying to artificially create these stars, right? They're trying to make fetch happen. (laughs) It's not going to happen. And such stars uh, would be included in Goebbels' 1944 list of irreplaceable artists, the Gottbegnaden list. And this is all leading up into World War II. Mm-hmm. During World War II, Goebbels' ministry would take over broadcasting in captured countries to kind of get the propaganda out as fast as possible, get the people on your side, that kind of thing. And, you know, we did talk about how fascinated with radio Goebbels was, but he also ensured that theaters stayed open even as bombs were falling. Mm-hmm. Going so far to even have defensive armaments around theaters in case of attack. Wow. Yeah. As you mentioned earlier, um, there were uh, speeches broadcast, closed-circuit television systems featuring rallies, and even mobile film vans showing propaganda films. Wow. Yeah, just really wanting to be like, see how great we are, we have all this stuff, getting getting the word out there. And knowing this, it makes more sense as to why historians sometimes argue that Hitler might have been more of a figurehead with Goebbels being kind of the man behind the curtain in kind of a Wizard of Oz sense. Mm. I mean, it's it's... The thing about Nazi Germany is that Hitler was definitely at the top of that pyramid in terms of who had final say and power over things. We talked last week about, you know, his policy being to kind of play all his underlings against one another. But what's also important is, you know, the recognition that not everything that we think of when we think of Nazi Germany came directly from Hitler. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, with Goebbels, as you're saying, you know, really being the guy who's almost like creating the image of Nazi Germany, you know, he's the he's the the PR guy for them. <laughs> and then, you know, we also last week talked about uh, Alfred Rosenberg, who was the guy coming up with like a lot of the philosophical thought. And then you had, you know, military leaders, and um, you know, you had things like all the weird occultish stuff in Nazi Germany that you get when you read like pulp stories and stuff that's from (laughs) indiana jones yeah that's like heinrich himmler's bag you know and so there's there's a lot of things that go into that pot but definitely hitler is the guy you know stirring the pot stirring the pot and making it happen and it's all 
for him, you know? Yeah. Yeah, the cult of personality that Goebbels helped cultivate, but was also so clearly, like, enamored mm-hmm. with, um, is really interesting. Because, like, he helped create it, but yet he's bought into his own message. Yeah, exactly. And I think the the important thing to understand when you talk of any of these guys having a lot of power in that structure is that on a whim, they wouldn't anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if, if one day Hitler woke up and just decided he didn't like you, if you did slightly the wrong thing at slightly the wrong time, you could go from being one of the most powerful people to being nothing, you know, which is an experience that several people in the Trump administration are pretty familiar with at this point. Yeah, totally. So do you know offhand how many films Hollywood would produce in, like, a year? Like, let's say 1935, 1936? Um, my guess would be in the hundreds. I really don't know, to be honest. Um, but I know that they were cranking them out. What would be a good guess for a low, a low estimate would be to assume that each of the major studios had an A and B picture out each week, a new one. So if that's two pictures a week for 52 weeks, that's 104. And then you have six major studios, that's um, 624 films. That would be my lowball estimate. Damn. Wow. I didn't think it was that high. Yeah, I mean, I don't really have those numbers off the top of my head. Fair enough. In Nazi Germany in 1936, they had a total of 80 films. Sure. At least. Yeah. Uh, kind of makes sense when you think that they only have 38 production companies. Mm-hmm. Surprisingly, they were actually able to kind of keep up that rate of production throughout the, the war. At the beginning of the war, they had 79 films out that year. In 1944, they had 69 films. Mm-hmm. Nice. But in 1945, they only had five. Yeah, well, 1945 was a bad year for Germany. Yeah, I mean, the fall of Nazi Germany happened, like, in the fifth month, in, like, May, Mm -hmm. but it was, like, crumbling. But um, even still, like, only five, uh, I think is is kind of, the end is coming. Yeah, I mean, at a certain point, it started to be like, the Allies are bombing Berlin, and it's like, what are you doing on a soundstage, doing make-believe, when there's bombs falling all around you? You know, and as, as important as Goebbels wanted that continued propaganda to be, you had military leaders being like, uh, this money could be going elsewhere. Totally. I think in order to help um, encourage politicized films, but also film production in general, in 1941, Goebbels created the Film of the Nation Award, which was given to films, quote, considered to have made an outstanding contribution to the national cause. Mm-hmm. So you kind of mentioned the one that's more um, artistic merit. Yeah. This one is like, you made a propaganda film without us having to like go in and tell you to. Yeah, and there was also, um, there was sort of artistic value, there was political value, and then this film of the nation was like... Top tier. Yeah, this was, this was you know, best Nazi picture. <laughs> totally. Films receiving this honor were, in 1941, Ohm Kruger which is a propaganda film attacking Britain, mm-hmm. 1941's, so same year, Heim Kerr, which is an anti-Polish film, 
1942's Der Grüße König, The Great King, which is a drama of Frederick the Great. So not explicitly propaganda, but, but like propping up a German hero. Yeah, and a lot of those, like, one of the things that was popular in Nazi German culture was using historical precedent for Hitler. Like saying, like, well, Hitler's just like this other great king from our past, or whatever. Yeah, I think that's definitely the case of this one. As well as in um, that same year, 1942, Die Entlassen, uh, which was about Otto von Bismarck. Mm -hmm. And then the last film to receive this honor is 1945's Kohlberg, um, which featured uh, the siege of a town named Kohlberg during the Napoleonic Wars. It's an anti-allies film, specifically making the French look like cowards. Mm -hmm. But that was the last film to uh, get this title. With the rate of film production going down, um, that could also be contributed to the fact that Goebbels was increasingly focused on people's morale back home in like Berlin, mm -hmm. um, rather than like, you know, oh, we just conquered this country, let's like get them on our side. But towards the Soviet invasion of Germany in 1945, even he had started to lose hope of winning the war. He argued with Hitler and, I guess, like their council for a last stand in Berlin, going so far as to bring his wife and six children to stay there. He had found his way to Hitler's side near the end of Nazi Germany, either from people being cast out of favor or leaving <laughs> in various ways. And so he had finally found his way to Hitler's side, but when Hitler committed suicide on April 30th, I guess Goebbels wrote in his diary, or it says to someone, that ah, he's shown us the way forward. Right. Yeah. With Hitler's death, Goebbels was now Reich Chancellor for a single day. Mm -hmm. During that day, he requested a ceasefire from the Russian troops in Berlin, that was rejected, and that night he and his wife drugged and poisoned their six kids and then committed suicide themselves. Yeah. So that was May 1st, and Nazi Germany's unconditional surrender came seven days later. Mm -hmm. As for the German cinema industry, in East Germany, theaters were ordered to reopen in late May 1945. Okay. The state-owned film production company, Deutsche Film Gesellschaft <laughs> opened the following year to start production. West Germany was not as fast in getting the, the industry back up and running because all of the film production studios were located in East Germany. Sure, yeah. Yeah. And because East Germany was controlled by the Soviets, you can bet that any kind of film standards the Soviets had was was put onto this new company. Yeah. That's it. That's it for cinema in Nazi Germany. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, so rewinding back to 1936 and our, our final German Expressionist film, mm -hmm. basically. I mean, at least of the original wave. You know, any anything that's German Expressionist from this point on is a, a pastiche or an homage, you know, rather than sort of organically coming from that movement. Yeah. With what I read, like, obviously Goebbels had control over the film industry as soon as he got that position in 1933, but it seems like most of, like, his initiatives 
really started to get pushed out and pumped out by like 1936, 1937. Mm-hmm. So I think that kind of explains why this indie film was kind of able to get passed and why he was like, it's a poor experiment. Yeah, exactly. Like the Reich film Kammer might have already been, would have already been established and membership would have already have been needed, um, but all of these other initiatives were were on their way down the pipeline. Yeah, exactly. It takes a while to, to switch these things, you know? Yeah. How are we watching this film, Ben? Well, um, Thurman Maria is in the public domain because it was an indie film made in a country that doesn't really kind of exist anymore. Yeah. So um, the easiest way for our listeners to find it is probably going to be on the Internet Archive. That's where we found the 1936 student of Prague. Yeah, it, there's a sort of a, a collection of German film from this era uh, on the Internet Archive. Um, so that's that's where you're going to want to look. Cool. Well, listeners, if you'd still like to check out the other films on our YouTube playlist, you can go to screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. Until then, you'll hear a brief musical interlude, and we will be right back after watching Fairman Maria from 1936. See you on the other side, everybody. Welcome back to Scream Scene. We just finished watching Fermin Maria from 1936. Sarah, what did you think of this movie? I actually really enjoyed this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it um, was not what I expected on any accounts. And I don't think it's perfect, but I think it's pretty good. I'm surprised that the people who made this movie weren't rounded up and shot. Really? Yeah. I think they got away with it because of how volkish it is. It's very volkish. Um, there's some other stuff that I think is like the sugar making the medicine go down or the, the chocolate covering around the kinder egg or however you want to metaphor that. There's some other stuff, I think, providing that cloaking device. But I think you're right on with the volkishness. Um, let's, let's talk about what happens in this movie. Sure. So, we open on a pastoral scene of a fiddler singing a jaunty tune about love while getting a ride from the ferryman across this river. Uh, the ferryman explains that finally, after 15 years, your payment means I'll have paid off this boat, and the fiddler scoffs at the prospect of money, because mm-hmm. he's a free spirit. <laughs> and once the fiddler has made it across, he continues to town. So that's the opening of this horror movie, and I'm just kind of sitting here like, okay. Strangely, we stay with the ferryman rather than the fiddler to the town. And the ferryman, he's getting settled in for the night, and he hears a clang from across the river, the sign that someone's across and needs a ride over. He gets over, and he comes across this tall, dark-cloaked, domineering man with not really a scowl, just really no facial expression at all and you know there's no words exchanged but with like some nods because the ferryman's kind of like put off by this guy he starts to ferry this stranger across 
you know, we see the ferryman start to get a little more tired, a little more exhausted, until he finally collapses about halfway across the river, and the stranger just, you know, checks him, and then pulls the boat back to the shore where he was picked up from, uh, clearly not intending to cross. So we can kind of take this to mean that the stranger is death or something like it. Mm-hmm. Now, the town has a job opening <laughs> for a new ferryman. Those shores are definitely not haunted. No need to worry. This job is open to, to anyone, which is just fine to new-to-town homeless Maria, who takes the job happily. That night, a clang across the shore sounds, and she goes over and finds a wounded man who has these pursuers on horseback. And these pursuers, I don't know if this is intentional, but they kind of look like the stranger because they have, like, white hair, um, black cloak, white horse. You know, just kind of visually similar. She takes him across, though, and helps to nurse him back to health, uh, hiding him from his pursuers. And eventually they fall in love. And kind of the cutest thing about that, about them falling in love, is she says how she has a home now because, because of love. So again, you're like, isn't this a horror movie? And I'm like, wait for it, okay, come on. It's the night of the fall festival, and across the river there's another clang, and it's the stranger, who is dressed very similarly to a very uh, fashionable uniform. Um, all black, uh, high black boots, um, sort of puffy pants, nice tight jacket, you get the idea. Um, and so, again, no words exchanged, and it's very spooky, and in a very intimidating way, he says that he's looking for the wounded man. And after Maria takes him across, she lies and tells the stranger that the wounded man is in the village. So they head to the village. There's some eerie scenes and dancing, but it's eerie and spooky. Um, but the important part with all of this festival scene is that he finds out that she misled him. She goes and hides in a church, praying, um, saying that uh, she would sacrifice herself to save the man she loves, but the stranger says that she would need more than a prayer to stop him, which is a really great line. I loved mm -hmm. it. He's making her, in kind of like a hypnotic state, interestingly, take him back to her hut to where the wounded man is. And they're taking the shortest route possible, which is across this swamp, this moor. As she's leading the stranger through these marshes, she kind of seems to come up with the idea of maybe I can outwit him. I'll drown in the marshes as well, but it, my sacrifice will be worth it. She's walking and he's following behind and we see him start to sink into the mud and she's just fine walking over, over the mud. Um, and she has her eyes kind of half-closed and is clearly praying, um, but there's no words really spoken throughout all of this. It's really eerie. Finally, we see the stranger kind of get sucked down completely into the mud. She's made it across to solid ground. She realizes that she has overcome death. <laughs> <laughs> um, she meets back up with the wounded man, um, and they're going to head back to his home country with a very beautiful ending pastoral scene. Um, and there's, there's other things going on that I kind of skipped over, but we can mention them if they become relevant. Sure. The end. I thought maybe we could talk a bit about the surface level 
filmmaking stuff we liked in this movie. And then if you had any sort of deeper stuff you wanted to get into, maybe you could go. Um, and then I thought maybe I should go last, because the stuff I have to talk about is a little heavy. Okay. Yeah. What are some of the things you liked about this movie, Sarah? I liked when it got spooky, because it got real spooky. Yeah, yeah. It's it's like you, you, you said it in the synopsis, like, there's long stretches of this movie where you're like, what? This isn't a horror movie. This is like some weird pastoral love story. But it serves as a really effective contrast for when things get spooky. Yeah. I was really impressed. Um, like, there were parts where I was bored with the pastoral stuff because there were also long stretches of, like, yes, we see that Maria's getting ready for bed. We don't need to see all of this. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't know if that was padding for time or really just, like, underlining the Volkish nature of this film. It's also very, the whole thing's very deliberately paced, right? It's a very slow-paced film with this kind of deliberate tenor. And I feel like that middle section is serving almost two purposes. One of them is this movie does a really good job of giving you the information you need for when that climax happens so that mm -hmm. everything's set up, right? So we knew that there was going to be a festival... You know, the fiddler who's been in town has been a, a recurring character. There's um, this guy in the town who wants Maria and is a bit of like a secondary, secondary antagonist, but not super important. But he's there so that then there can be sort of a confrontation between him and the stranger at the festival. Things like that where all this stuff in the middle that isn't re doesn't seem important does seem important. The most significant of which is that because Maria is going from her little hut by the ferry where she lives to the village often, she knows the route through the swamp. And we get established a few times that the swamp's really dangerous if you don't know where to step. Mm -hmm. So that, you know, again, we have that in the climax and the finale. So that middle section's setting up all these things, even if you aren't aware of it. The other thing that I think it's really effective for is just almost like making you forget the start of the movie. Yeah. Because the, you know, the movie starts with that really eerie scene of the old ferryman dying. And then, you know, by the time that guy, the, the stranger, shows up again, you've <laughs> almost forgotten him, right? And the way that they, I guess, cut to him, like... It's eerie because we know it's night, and we hear the clang across, and, I mean, wounded guy, he doesn't get a name. Wounded man is, like, freaking out because he has a fever. But she goes across, and instead of just, like, cutting to, you know, seeing her go across, whatever, we get these shots of nature, of ripples. And what's interesting is we get some of these shots of nature... This reference doesn't make sense because of timeline reasons, but almost these Terrence Malick-style nature shots mm -hmm, sure. of flowers, of, like, the water, whatever, um, when morning comes. And it's very, like, pastoral and calm. And then when we're meeting the stranger for the second time, we're getting these same types of shots, and I suspect it's because of the music, but... There's an undercurrent of, like, something's wrong here, but we're still getting these same shots, and then we, like, do, like, a pan or a tilt up, and suddenly he's right there. Mm -hmm. uh, and she's across. 
I have stuff to say about the music. Yeah, the music in this movie uh, did a really good job of supporting the film. Yeah, and I think it's interesting how it wasn't heavy-handed in the way that we've experienced <laughs> even just Student of Prague last week, where yeah. I was just like, I know what feelings to feel right now. You don't need to, like, highlight them for me. Mm-hmm. In this film, let me back up. Okay. So before we watched the movie, you were you made a comment of how this is the end of German Expressionist horror films. Mm-hmm. Like, made in Germany Expressionist horror films. And so then after watching this film, I started to think about what kind of through line is there from maybe the 1913 Student of Prague, but really more Caligari, mm-hmm. to this. And visually, there's not really anything. Yeah, not much survives visually. Yeah. Like, in last week's Student of Prague, there was some German expressionism in the street design, but that's kind of it. Like, there obviously with the shadows and stuff like that, but that was really it. In this film, even the shadow usage doesn't feel as German expressionist to me. It has this really um, eerie, gloomy atmosphere that feels more akin to Fall of the House of Usher for me, than it, it does Caligari. For me, it reminded me of Vampire, too. Yes, definitely. Yes. I, I was going to comment about that when you mentioned the deliberate nature mm-hmm. of the film. Yeah. But here in Farman Maria, with the in terms of its German expressionism, like, it's all outdoors, it's all very pastoral, as we've highlighted several times. There's no artificial feeling here. Mm-hmm. But it feels German expressionist because of the atmosphere provided by this, like, diffusion of gloom and the music. Okay. This music, for me, is what makes it German expressionist, which is really interesting because we haven't really seen... German Expressionist music at all. Yeah, it's been, we've defined it mostly as a visual style. Yeah. The music will build and build and build this tension and will, maybe for some people, come off as very heavy-handed or driving what the visuals are, but then suddenly when you see the stranger on screen, the music's gone. Mm -hmm. It's just silence. Yeah. And it's incredibly effective. And so it makes me think of the visual nature of German Expressionism of, like, here's the light and here's the dark. And instead going, like, here's the music, stark difference of here's no music. Mm -hmm. Speaking of the effectiveness of that, I think the film has very effective sound design Mm -hmm. as well. Um, It's all throughout, really, but there's two uses of it that I want to highlight. The first is that when someone signals Maria that they want to come across the river... They have to kind of bang on a plowshare to get a, to to signal it. So it's basically they have to bang metal on metal, and the sound effect used is this like really kind of unpleasant, kind of scrapey banging sound mm-hmm. that basically initiates tension so many times. And at first, it's because what she's afraid of is the people who were after this wounded man are going to come back, mm-hmm. right? But it's like every time you hear that your heart stops. And the fact that they used a very unpleasant sound effect for that helps reinforce the idea that someone, you know, banging on that is not a good thing, right? Yeah. And then the second one is a bit more obvious, but um, when they're in the church, uh, after the bit where she's praying and he says, like, you're going to need something more powerful than a prayer to stop me, 
So, the thing about the stranger is he's death. Yeah. Straight up, he's death. But the movie plays with it a little bit before that. There's a little bit of wiggle room where maybe it's ambiguous. Because maybe the ferryman just had a heart attack at the start of the movie. I don't know why that guy wouldn't want to still go across the river, but maybe that's what happened. And then when he shows up again, like you said, there's the conscious decision to visually link him with the guys pursuing the wounded man. So you think, okay, maybe he's from the same army as them. Because it's uh, the wounded man's a military officer and he's engaged in combat. And that's who's pursuing him is the enemy army. So you think, okay, he's with the enemy army. And the fact that he's asking about the wounded man and stuff, you know, maybe that's his, what his deal is. And it's not really, even when he's in the church and he's saying, a prayer can't stop me. That doesn't necessarily say anything, because, like, I'm sure there's plenty of bad people whom prayer has not stopped, right? Yeah. The thing that confirms who he is is the next thing that happens, where Maria decides that she's going to signal for help by running up the bell tower and ringing the bells. Mm -hmm. And, like, maybe one ring gets out before all of a sudden the sound stops, and she looks up and the bell's still moving, and the clapper is still hitting the side of it, but there's just... No sound. Yeah, and, like, there was nothing. Mm -hmm. It wasn't like you could hear the score. There was just nothing. Yeah, and then uh, Death says to her, there will be no bells ringing in the village tonight. You know, so you know that he did it, right? And that's the thing that confirms for you who he is. You know, you've suspected it the whole time, but it's like, okay, no, he has supernatural powers. There's some other little hints to it, too. They... Once again, for the second movie in the row, being able to, like, roll a six on dice on command is, like, a sign of supernatural ability. <laughs> well, like, even everyone's reaction to mm-hmm. him, he has this this aura or presence that everyone is reacting to. Everyone's just kind of either, like, kind of going, like, oh, get away from me, or, like, as if they just smelled, like, rotten eggs from this guy. <laughs> the guy just, like, had chili last night and let out a little quiet fart, and everyone's reacting to that, like... Like, the performances in this are really, really good with everyone reacting to it. Yeah. But even just the guy who is playing the stranger. Yeah, Peter Foss. He was really powerful. Mm -hmm. And it was really interesting to think about his acting, where it was very, um, I don't want to say stoic, when really what I just mean is, like, Mm straight-faced. Compared to Maria Siebel Schmitz, where, like, (laughs) it's like she can't do exuberant emotion but there are times where like the wounded man asks her like do you love me or Mm -hmm. something and she like says yes but it's like a whisper but you can see the emotion on her face so seeing like her minute reactions to things that are still very powerful compared is similar to the stranger's like very little change but presence. Mm-hmm. Yeah, her acting in those scenes really suggested to me a character who was afraid of admitting, you know, that she's in love or afraid of showing that she's happy. Mm-hmm. All this said, I think this film is pretty dang good. It's not perfect, mainly just because I find the Volkish stuff is a bit too much. In my notes, I have Volkish Galorkish. <laughs> but uh, I understand why it's in there. But I think I think this is a really good movie, especially considering the climate it was made in. I think it would be really interesting to compare this film with, like, 
that more recent eerie tales that we put on the miscellaneous list. Sure, yeah. Um, in how they are both trying to undercut the political momentum of their time, I guess. Mm-hmm. It's interesting to me that you opened the discussion with, I don't know how these people didn't get shot. Because to me, like, how did the director talk these Nazis into making this film in the first place? Yeah. Yeah. So, let's talk about how this film undercuts the political climate. Yeah. On the other hand, from the idea that this undercuts Nazism, I can see how if one was inclined, you could see pro-Nazi stuff in here as well. But even the stuff that's sort of pro-Nazi doesn't quite gel with what official Nazi doctrine was. Mm -hmm. So the first thing that kind of needs a bit of elucidation before I go any further is the German word Heimat, Mm -hmm. which means homeland, which uh, gets used a lot in this movie uh, in reference to the wounded man's country where he's from. The implication, I guess, is that this river is like a national border. Yeah. Um, It's worth stating that the film's set in the past people are on horseback the the fashions are old timey um but nothing's really explicitly stated of where and when we are the sense i got kind of got because everyone spoke german but there was two different countries is maybe this was like one side's germany and one side's austria where we're we're kind of similar enough but technically two different countries it's not really important yeah well you said the director is from prussia mhm that's pretty much prussia sure it's not really important, but it's important that they're two different countries because he refers to his as Heimat or Homeland. He doesn't give it a name, but it's strongly implied, I think, that he's German mm-hmm. from the references he makes about his country. Specifically, he talks about how it has these multitudes of enemies that it has to defeat. He references its black forests. Like, it's, it's a pretty explicit implication. I mean, an explicit implication, sort of a oxymoron, but moving on. The thing about the word homeland, or Heimat, is it has very strong connotations in German nationalist movements. Yes. Generally, the word homeland has strong fascist connotations anywhere you encounter it. So the thing about this is the wounded man, uh, Erebert Moog, is who plays him, so I'm just going to refer to him by the actor's name from now on. Call him Moog. Yeah. So Moog's character is from implied Germany. And he he talks about a lot of the importance of the homeland, the importance of Heimat. Um, he's basically repeating a lot of Nazi talking points um, and defending them. He talks about how lacking a homeland is like the worst possible thing that could happen to a person. Um, and also, when he's in his fever in mm. Maria's hut, there's one part where he uh, sits up and starts like singing like, military marching songs. Uh, And Maria's, like, freaked out by this. Yeah. But the tenor of his military devotion and his songs are very nationalist, sort of Nazi military kind of language. Mm -hmm. Um, He seems like a good Nazi boy, basically. Yeah. You know, and ultimately the happy ending of this movie is his return home and an emphasis on the glory of the homeland. So with all of that in place, you know, to me, that's sort of the, the smokescreen, mm-hmm. basically, of this movie, right? Where that stuff all is in line with 
what, you know, good Nazi values are, so you can kind of, if you aren't really paying attention, you might just hear that dialogue and think that's where we're going with this. Mm -hmm. But Moog's character isn't our protagonist, mm -hmm. right? Maria's the protagonist, and she has a lot of interesting characteristics. The first of which is she's on the run. The second of which is she has no home. Not just she's homeless, but like when she talks to Moog's character and he's talking about a home country, she says she doesn't have one. Mm -hmm. um, she has no papers. That's a thing that's explicitly brought up, which like, that's a pretty modern reference, I think. Yeah. She also fears the police and authority. She has, of course, dark features. And she reacts with fear to Moog's military ideals. Those are all the qualities we have in the protagonist of this Nazi movie. Yeah. It's worth remembering that a large part of who was targeted by Nazi racism was, you know, there was this racial theory of like, oh, the Aryans are the master race, and then there's this hierarchy. But that was sort of pseudoscience justifying what was really at the heart of their racism, which is what they were really against was people who didn't belong in Germany. Mm -hmm. People who didn't have a homeland. Um, you know, the Jewish people were seen that way. No matter how long they had been there, they weren't Germans. They didn't belong in Germany. And because of the Jewish diaspora, they don't have a homeland. They aren't from anywhere. They're just everywhere. It's the same thing with uh, the way the Nazis targeted Roma and Sinti peoples. You know, the Romani are the same thing. They're an itinerant people. They don't have an explicit homeland. They're just in ours for some reason. You know, that was who was targeted, mm -hmm. was people who didn't belong in this idea of Heimat. In the context of the film, Maria is shown as Christian. She, uh, when she's in the church, she recites the Lord's Prayer, uh, which is an explicitly Christian idea. Um, however, through these sort of tags, she's implicitly identified with the other of German society, and yet she's our hero. Yeah. Now, you may think that the way the movie justifies this is because our symbolic outsider falls in love with Moog, and then she finds a homeland with him at mm. the end, right? That's the message of the movie, that through, you know, you said that was cute to you, that love brought her a homeland. But that's actually the exact opposite of Nazi law. Yeah. The important thing to know here, if you don't know about this, uh, listeners, is um, the, Nuremberg, the Nuremberg Laws uh, passed September 15th, 1935, so midway through making this movie, but definitely before it came out. Uh, they outline the following relevant ideas. There's a lot more in them, but this is what's relevant here. Marriages between Jewish people, Romani people, uh, black people, basically non-Aryans and Germans, were forbidden. Any existing marriages uh, were invalid. Uh, extramarital relations, of course, were forbidden. Only Germans are citizens. Um, but everyone who lives in Germany is a subject of the state. There were some weird provisions like if you were a Jewish person, you couldn't fly a German flag outside your home, but you were protected by right to fly a Jewish flag. Like, weird little things like that. But only Germans were citizens. Children that were born of mixed marriages from before the law was passed were considered mixed race, but afterwards were considered Jewish. 
Um, so if you were, you know, the child of a Jewish person and a German, you were Jewish. Um, a mixed-race person, then, who would marry a Jewish person became Jewish retroactively. And if you had a mixed marriage between a German person and a Jewish person, the only way it wouldn't be invalidated is if the German person became Jewish hmm. and gave up their citizenship. So under Nazi ideology, Maria cannot gain a homeland by loving someone who has one. Instead, what she's doing is stripping away his homeland. That's what would actually happen in Nazi Germany if they were to be together. Okay. So the sympathy that's shown towards Maria in this film is implicitly anti-Nazi, but the story's moral is explicitly against Nazi ideals. Mm-hmm. And then you come to the imagery in this film. And Sarah, you, you hinted at this already. But, you know, the enemy that pursues Moog's character on horseback, they're wearing these black cloaks. And Maria has to hide him in her home to protect him. And then the way that Death himself is the most Nordic-looking person in this movie. Yeah. You talked about his outfit, but, like, he has blonde hair, blue eyes, square jaw. He looks like a 1940s Rutger Hauer, you know? <laughs> um, he's the only guy who looks Nordic, really, of all the main characters. Um, and he's, you know, he's dressed in this black uniform, and he's hunting through the village. It's very much like the way in another movie you would see an SS officer hunting for hidden Jews, in a village. Exactly. You know, yeah. and, and the way that Moog's character is hidden. Like, it plays exactly like that in your head, and it's such a weird disconnect when you realize, like, but this is being made under, like, Nazi authority, this movie, right? And there's so many shots of, you know, you brought these up, these dark-featured villagers who instinctively react with fear to this Nordic stranger. And then despite the fact that you would think death is something you can't defeat, right? Death is inevitable. You know, you can't defeat death in uh, the seventh seal. But here, death is defeated by a woman with no homeland. <laughs> using the land, like explicitly using the land, which is neat. Yeah, so it's as if the, the dialogue, which is co-written by Nemitz and has all these Nazi dog whistles is covering for the scenario and the visuals which are coming from Vispar. And he's just sneaking in this anti-Nazi me um, message. And it's, it's totally shocking to me that this made it past anyone, because we talk about the way people sneak things past the production code over in Hollywood, but the, the Nazis were actually pretty savvy to this stuff. You know, Goebbels understood the power of how visuals tell a story, um, he understood the power of allegory. You know, a lot of the historical dramas that Nazi Germany put out were allegories. So it's not like the Nazis didn't understand, oh, this might represent this other thing. I feel like the only way this movie happened was because of when it happened. You know, if, it had, if they had tried to make this movie any later in the decade, it would not have happened, I think. Yeah, I think um, the fact that the, these Nuremberg laws passed six-ish months before... Three months. Well, the, the movie was shot between August and October and was released in January, and the Nuremberg Laws were passed in September. So three or four months yeah. after. Maybe they got some leeway there. But um, I wonder if also... So Crystal Knot mm -hmm. happened in 38. Yes. 
I think if this movie had ha- had come out after that, it would have been very explicitly like the tying of death mm-hmm. to SS officer would have been very explicit. Yeah, I, I think uh... at, at this point, I think it's almost like a premonition of what's to come. I'm not saying that they didn't that SS officers didn't stalk the streets and look for people to send to camps or anything like that. Um, but we're early in, yeah, for yeah. sure. Yeah, we're we're in the early days of it. Yeah, I think I think that's the key to this whole thing is is they couldn't have made this movie at any point later, basically, than than what we have here. Yeah. I wanted to ask you, having seen this and the previous horror films, the only horror films made in Nazi Germany. Mm-hmm. In the opener, I kind of explained how I suspect the reason why the production studios and everyone moved away from horror is, like, they really got to make profits now. There's policies in place to really emphasize escapist films rather than horror, where you're looking at, like, the future of SS officers here. Do you think that's the case, or do you think... Why do you think there are no future horror films in Nazi Germany? Well, I think um, I think the profit thing is a good point, and I think that probably had a lot to do with it. I mean, there's no horror films. Um, I'm, I'm rushing ahead a little bit. Spoiler alert for future episodes of Scream Scene, I guess. There's no horror films anywhere in the world between 1936 and 1939. There's a three-year stretch where just nobody makes any of them anywhere. So that's certainly part of it, the, the profit margin thing. Um, I think the other part of it is... If you think of the philosophies, right, this horror film is explicitly, I think, an anti-Nazi horror film. And obviously, days were numbered for that kind of content. You know, even we talked about Unheimliche Geschichten kind of being anti-Nazi, right? There's just no way that that sort of movie is going to get made. And then you go, okay, well, what's a pro-Nazi horror movie look like, right? Mm -hmm. And it's easy for, I think, us to imagine what that might look like because, you know, we think, well, wasn't the whole point to try and drum up um, resentment against Jewish people, right? So wouldn't you have, like, a movie with, like, a Jewish person as the villain? And certainly they made a couple of those. But those aren't horror because for it to be horror, you would have to have, you know, helpless victims and... The sense that there was no way for you to defeat this looming evil and, you know, really playing on those anxieties and making people afraid. And the goal of a lot of Nazi anti-Semitic propaganda wasn't to make you afraid of Jewish people. It was to make you angry at Jewish people. Because you didn't want to say, like, oh, there's no way that the state can protect you, right? Nazi anti-Semitic stories end with, the Jewish person being executed by the state for their crimes and, you know, order and peace being restored and stuff, right? The idea was to portray Jewish crimes so that the audiences would be angry enough to go outside and lynch someone, not huddle at home in fear. That's the difference. I think that horror was sort of intrinsically non-compatible with Nazi ideology, because you aren't trying to make the population afraid, you're trying to create a population that believes that they are the master race and are supreme, 
And, you know, that, that and fear aren't compatible. This brings up another one of the ways that we define horror, which is that the protagonists feel like they've survived something rather than heroically overcome. Mm -hmm. In the context of, like, what you've just described and that other way we define horror films, do you think this is a horror film? Because, yeah. like, Maria is, is saved at the end, right? Yeah, I think this is a horror film. I think, um, I think it definitely is. Um, there's, like, a long stretch in the middle where I had some, some doubts, for sure, where I was like, what, is this just magical realism? What is this? <laughs> um, but no, I think, I think this is indeed uh, a horror film. You know, um, because ultimately... Maria survives this situation. The implication is that she had divine help, right? Yeah, because she doesn't sink into the mud. She's surprised that she lives. Lives. Yeah. She was totally expecting and even intending to die. Yeah, it's Deus Ex Machina, quite literally, yeah. that saves her. It's in the same wheelhouse as the way other people survive in in other horror movies. Yeah. Uh, you know when when death is sinking into the swamp, I was going, oh yeah, I could see this happening to uh, Boris Karloff. <laughs> well, where do you feel it makes sense to rank this pastoral horror, pastoral <laughs> horror film? Pastoral horror. <laughs> so, um, the range I was looking at, Sarah, is a little high. Okay. Uh, I don't know if you'll be on the same page with me or not. Um, I'm looking... At 11 to 16. Um, okay. I think maybe the highest I'd put this movie is um, above Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, below Murders in the Zoo. And the lowest I'd go with it is, well, I might go to as low as 17, actually. The lowest I might go with it is below Vampire, above The Ghoul. Mm -hmm. um, but I think this versus Vampire is an interesting discussion to be had. But that's sort of the range I'm looking in. Yeah, I wasn't really sure where to rank this film, um, mainly because of the Volkish pastoral stuff. It's not as, like, whiplashy as Murders in the Rue Morgue. I will forever throw shade at <laughs> the fucking pastoral scenes in Murders in the Rue Morgue. It's just because of how that film's edited, right? Versus yeah. this, where there's uh, an ebb and flow to things. Yeah, in here, it really works. So, for me, my range was... Above Murders in the Room Morgue, all the way up to number 20, The Black Room, which is like a range of like eight films, but I, I can see where you're coming from with ranking it higher. So let's discuss how it compares to Vampire. I think that's, I, I would agree that that's an interesting conversation. The pacing is really neat. It has the same actress. Yeah. Um, I thought it was interesting how in the discussion with Vampire, you noted how it's a happy ending that she dies mm -hmm. because her soul has been saved because the vampire has been killed. A lot of whether you like one or the other might come down to taste because it's hard to compare those differences. Vampire is more experimental. Mm -hmm. It tries more things. It goes to more places. It's less ambiguous about the supernatural, you know, and much more outright with that. Mm -hmm. um, it's less dedicated to, like... A narrative that makes sense <laughs> um, and more dedicated to kind of a feeling now I think this film does a very good job of sort of creating that feeling too, that gloomy atmosphere but there's a, a bit of a stronger story here um, 
in some ways, Fairman Maria doesn't go for it the way Vampire does, because Vampire's a bizarro horror movie the whole way through, mm-hmm. whereas this isn't. But in other ways, Fairman Maria goes for it more because I find some of what happens in this film like a bit more threatening and a bit more um a bit grimmer than what's in Vampire. It feels more real than the dreamy threat of yeah. Vampire. And you know, we talked about how Vampire was a movie about sort of Christian virtues mm-hmm. and you know, saving someone's soul and that sort of thing. And it ultimately means that Vampire feels a bit more like a fairy tale. You know, a spooky fairy tale, but a fairy tale. And this movie, because what it's doing with its story has a bit more allegory for reality, it gives it a bit more power, too. Like, this movie's about something in a way that Vampire isn't really. Yeah. I think visually, and I think from a filmmaking perspective, like, they both do neat things, but... I think Vampire is neater. Like, Vampire's <laughs> doing neater things. Um, but but in th- terms of a, a horror, as a horror movie. Yeah, as a horror narrative, I think Fairman Maria gets the edge because of how strong it gets in that third act. And I think it's that strength of horror that, for me, kind of propels it above Cat in the Canary and Phantom of the Opera, too, because even though those are both very strong visual films with a lot... I think, more to look at on the screen than what's in this movie. Not to say that the visuals in this movie are weak, but they are just kind of amour. But I think the the strength of the horror in Fairman Maria kind of puts it above those two films, Cat in the Canary and Phantom of the Opera. I would agree with that. So looking at kind of the top of your list with Caligari, mm-hmm. I I really do feel strongly that it's strangely enough, the music of this film that makes it German Expressionist, and that's so interesting to me. It's such a new, unique take on what German Expressionism is and does. Um, I feel like if we're just comparing German Expressionism as seen in Caligari versus Fairman Maria, I feel like Caligari should go above because it starts it. I, I see that argument. I totally I totally get that. My My thing with that is... Caligari has always been a very intellectual experience when I watch it. Mm. You know, it's it's a bit dry and it's a bit clever. You know, you're you're sitting there and you go, oh, this set design's very clever. These costume designs are very clever. This twist at the end where he was crazy is very clever. But there isn't a lot in Caligari that's visceral. Versus this film. Versus this film, yeah, which has a bit more of a gut punch. And this is kind of why I ended up saying this is as high as I'll go, though, is because this movie doesn't have the gut punch of, say, Murders in the Zoo. Yeah. Like, Murders in the Zoo does all the way through what this film only does in the third act, right? Mm-hmm. That's kind of why I ended up with that as my, my upper limit. What do you think about this film compared to Nosferatu? They both have eerie, gloomy atmospheres. They both have a female protagonist. They are very similar in that they both have a female protagonist in a black dress with white ruffles at the cuff and um, collar who must sacrifice herself to defend the one she loves. Yes. They're very similar. I prefer this film over Nosferatu, to be completely honest. Like, Nosferatu as a threat is 
very scary. And he kills a lot of people. He kills a lot of people, and it's not like the sort of like Dracula as a vampire where it's like a singular, like Nosferatu feels truly like a plague. Um, yeah, he's not, he's not after um, Helen, right? The way that Dracula's after Mina. Nosferatu's just after food. Yeah. But he's not death. Yeah. Right? Like, he's a, just a, he's a proxy for death. He's not capital D death or capital <laughs> T Todd. You're totally right about the visceral nature of this film. And I think that's a credit to the music, but also the, the shots, the way it was edited the sound design. The sound design. Yeah. Okay, I think I think I'm comfortable putting this above Caligari. Okay. Then I think that's where it's going to go. Uh coming in at number 11 is Fairman Maria from 1936, directed by Frank Visbar. If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you will find links to other films, a list of the films on our YouTube playlist if they are available through there, and on our website you will also find a an appeals box where you can submit appeals, but also concerns, questions, suggestions, random, suggestions, random thoughts, anything like that. You can also get a hold of us through email at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com or over Twitter at underscore screamscene. Scream Scene updates every Wednesday on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Google Play, and you can find us with our RSS feed through any podcasting app that you like to use. One of the ways that you can support the show is by giving us a rating or a review on one of those services, which helps boost the show's visibility and allows other people to kind of maybe discover it. Um, or, in a more direct way, if you know anyone who you think might be into the kind of mix of I don't know, history and sociology and film talk that this uh, <laughs> podcast specializes in, just let them know about the show. Uh, word of mouth is a very powerful way for a show like this to grow. A more concrete way you can support the show is by heading over to patreon.com slash podcast. We are very grateful to the patrons that we have. Um, and we would be eternally grateful to you if you would join the ranks of the patrons of the night. You can support the show for as little as a dollar a month. And that helps towards really just making sure that we have sort of the time to put aside, to do the research, to record the show, keep it at the quality level that you've sort of come to expect, and hopefully improve on that quality level and bring an even better show to you in the future. At a $5 level, patrons get access to bonus audio from past episodes. The most recent one we put up was like 10 minutes of bonus audio from the Caligari episode. Some really neat and interesting takes that didn't make it into the full show. Uh, so that's a great example of what you can hear there. And then at the $10 level... Uh, patrons will get once a month a unique horror short story written by myself. Uh, the first of which is already up. It's a bit of historical fiction, um, a little bit of a spooky story I called The King's Guest. Patreon.com slash scene. What are we watching next week, Ben? Well, Sarah, next week we're back uh, in some familiar territory 
we're back in America, we're back at Universal Pictures, and we're back with Boris Karloff and Bela Lugosi in a film. It's uh, 1936's The Invisible Ray. Is it The Invisible Man, but his name is Ray? No. Okay. Well, we will see you next week, Creatures of the Night. Bye! Bye!